At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. This is Stuart Wright, host of the BritFlix.com podcast. I just want to interrupt the start of this show by letting you know that I had a lot of fun producing this latest podcast with the writer-director of Butterfly Kisses, Raphael Kuplinski. Our first attempt to record the podcast ended in um, broadband knocking us out the window. So we halted that one. The following day, we tried to reconnect and broadband gods wouldn't let us. So um, I ended up um, recording the podcast via a mobile phone conversation for the second half of the interview, which means there are two very different sound qualities to the podcast. I've been given a sample of the Butterfly Kisses score by Nathan Klein. The tune that I've been given is called Bedroom Sanctity, and the entire score as an album will be available via Air Adele Records from the 11th of February 2017, and you'll be able to listen to it via Spotify or download it from iTunes or Amazon. Um, I'll put in a little snippet in the break between the two different interviews and I will leave the whole minute or so I've been given um, from the producers at the end of the podcast for you to hear it as one piece of music. Over to the interview with Raphael Kaplinski. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Raphael Kaplinski, director of Butterfly Kisses. Hello, Raphael. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. We're, uh, we're, we're doing this on resilient laptops, I believe, as far as recording this. We've tried other, other systems, but laptops is the way forward, it, it appears. Um, do you want to give the audience a brief synopsis first before we go into any of the details about what Beautiful Kiss, Beautiful, what Butterfly Kisses is, is about as a film first? I mean, it's a film about friendship. It's about three friends living um, in London, living on a housing estate in London. Mm-hmm. Um, they spend most of the time together. 
they're about 16, 17, and things are going very well until they discover that one of them has a dark secret that alienates him from from everybody else. Uh, and when a disaster happens, the two friends of the main protagonist feel very bad about it. So it's a film about growing up. It's a film about the moment in our lives when we are kind of confronted with the darker side of the moon and uh, we are forced by the circumstances to stop believing all of a sudden that, you know, the world is all about hearts and flowers, that it's that there is a dark side to it that is very real and potentially um, dangerous. So that's really what Butterfly Kisses as a film is all about. Now, you, you directed this. Um, so at what stage in the process when it was being written or developed to be produced did you come on board to the project? Well, when I came on board, we, we did have a script. I mean, the producers had a script. Mm -hmm. Marilyn Merton and Greer Ellison. Mm -hmm. They had a script, but it was a very early draft. Okay. So um, I had known them for quite a while. Actually, uh, Marilyn, in its time, was a... Uh, was a student of mine. Okay. So um, he came, he gave me a call and he said, Raphael, we have this script. Um, I realize it's quite rough, but you know, I believe it's very interesting and would you be interested in taking a look at it? And, and I said, sure, yeah, why not? And I read it and I re recognized immediately that it was quite, um, quite, you know, fresh, but there was something about it that really attracted my attention straight away. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a dark quality about it, which I really, really liked. And, you know, I read a lot of scripts. I read a lot of scripts that, you know, do have that element or do, do, do have that quality. But in most of the cases, that dark quality doesn't come from anywhere. It's uh, just juxtaposed juxta juxta against the rest of the material without any reason, really. Okay. But with Butterfly Kisses, it was very different. I could tell that the darkness in the script came from a very interesting place. I could tell that it was all very personal, and I could also tell that it was genuine. And that's why I really decided to join the project. Okay, so so in that sense then, what what happened to the screenplay once, once you're on board? Were you directly involved in sort of giving notes or were you in fact sort of taking time to sort of script up to yourself? Well, we, uh, we sent the script to the microwave scheme and mm -hmm. um, we got accepted. We were among the 10 finalists Excellent. and we went through the, uh, what they call the microwave school, which is a week long development workshop, okay. which really allowed us to hone the story. Also, we, you know, received a lot of feedback, which was, uh, which turned out to be, you know, priceless, uh, priceless in the longer term. Can, can you give us, Anyways, a, for, uh, those, for those people outside the, the, the microwave scheme, can you give us a little insight into what that, in, that week long involves in terms of, from your point of view as the filmmaker? Well, um, the microwave camp is, uh, it's really a series of meetings stretched over six days, yeah. and you present your projects to producers, directors, um, screenwriters. Okay. You receive feedback from them, and you also um, get the opportunity to, uh, 
to direct one of the scenes. So uh, uh, we found the process to be extremely useful simply because it was really the very first time when we confronted the uh, story with, uh, you know, with a, uh, with external audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really kind of allowed us to, um, you know, to shape the central idea because at that stage we still weren't quite sure what the film was going to be about. Okay. We knew who the protagonist was going to be, but we really had no idea how to orchestrate the characters. We really had no idea whether it was going to be a, let's say, comedy or a drama or, you know, yet something else. Um, And I think it was actually because of the microwave that we decided that, you know, it was going to be a film about friendship and that became the central theme of the film. Um, So from our point of view, microwave school was absolutely uh, fundamental after the school, of course, um, we were among the um, six, I think, second round finalists um, okay. as well. But we never received the money. We actually went off, you know, and made the film on our own. But after the uh, micro school, with you know all the kind of uh, thoughts that were, you know, swirling around in our minds, um, we actually traveled to. Uh, to a place near Bristol where we rented a, a house for a week. And me, I mean, myself, Marilyn, the producer, Greer, the screenwriter, and David, another producer, we we spent a week just, uh, you know, talking about the story and uh, and pushing it in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the final direction. What, so that what, was what, what, do you remember being... Okay, okay. What, what do you remember being the... Um... Well, I guess I guess flowing out of the microwave uh, feedback process, and then clearly you're going away for the, for your kind of your week's sabbatical to to sort of bang heads together on what 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 you do with it next. What were those um, storytelling challenges that you were having to resolve? Oh, there was a, there were you know plenty of them. I think you know every every film project poses one primary challenge that has to be overcome for the story to work. Okay. I think in our case, though, the process was even more difficult because there were a few of those. I mean, uh, first of all, um, you know, the film tackles a very challenging subject. Mm-hmm. And um, we we really had to decide whether we, uh, we were providing any insight into the uh, kind of central problem must presented in the film. Where are we going to use it as a plot device? Um, the other thing was about the three friends. You know, how different were they? Um, how were we going to orchestrate the characters in the film just to create interesting dynamics between, you know, the, 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 the central trio? Mm-hmm. Um, another very difficult aspect of developing the script had to do with money. How do we keep the uh, screenplay feasible? I mean, uh, we knew right off the bat that we were not going to have $10 million to make the film or 10 million pounds. We knew straight away that we would actually have to make it, you know, with very, very little money. So um, keeping the world of the script contained was actually a a massive consideration. and that actually was something that I believe um, dictated a lot of the uh, other choices, you know, the uh, the feasibility uh, 
aspect of it. Were these things that, that were in the script, so in, in the original sort of drafts of the script, were there elements that would have been, would have required sort of high production values or expensive sets to, to recreate from page to screen? Not really. I think the original script was simple enough, but it was still a little bit too big. Okay. I mean, um, the final film was really shot on a single housing estate in Stockwell. Okay. Um, we were really using two streets and three flats. And you don't really see it in the film because I believe we did it very skillfully. But... Uh, um, even the original script was already quite small. We knew that it had to become much, much smaller. So, did did that have any impact on on the story itself, or was was were they were they all problems you felt you you answered adequately in terms of what ended up being the production? Yes, like I said, um, the production issues definitely had an impact on the story. Mm. It might actually sound strange because the usual the original script was. Um, I mean, covered 24 hours in the life of those three boys. Mm -hmm. And the final script actually covers a couple of days. So it sounds like we actually made the story bigger. Yeah. But that wasn't the case. Um, we really cut down the number of locations, first of all. Uh, and okay. then we reduced the number of characters quite dramatically, I would say. Mm. I think the original number of characters was... Uh, off the top of my head, I mean, we went through so many drafts that I might be a little bit off, but I think we had about 18, 20 characters to start with. Mm. And in the final film, we have three primary characters and, um, and about four or five, you know, secondary ones. And that is pretty much the entire cast. Mm. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting, interesting mix of a cast, isn't it? Because you've got, you've got what you would expect, expect of a friend movie, where you've got, you've got this core of three people, um, which are what are they? Are they are they sixteen? Or are they? Are they um, actually, Theo Stevenson, who plays the lead, I think Theo was sixteen when we shot the film. Okay. Liam Whiting, who um, for whom it was, you know, his very first film, mm -hmm. was also 16. Byron Lyons was uh, was much older. He was actually uh, 26 when we shot the film. Really? But <laughs> he looks very, very young, so you wouldn't be able to tell. Oh, no, no. You, but you in reality, don't. he was much, much older than the other boys. But, but in that sense um, <clears throat> of the of the three characters, then you've got the world that surrounds them, and not like you've already alluded to with the the council estate that we're talking. We're talking about a certain demographic of people, aren't we? Um, living living in um, sort of lower kind of yes. working class life, but also when when you when yeah. you talk about darker issues, what what two things that get that get um, that catch your eye and get your attention is um, well, one teenagers voluminous consumption of pornography um yes as, as an issue for to confront you know in 2017 which i don't think we do enough about i think and it, and that's that's certainly a subject that gets that gets tackled head-on in your film and then there is the specter of um of paedophiles in our community i mean we've seen lots of high profile news and there's there's an there's a, there's a moment in your film where a similar type of thing is sort of commented on 
and there's headlines in the newspaper about sort of paedophile rings being broken and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> so it's sort of you, 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 you've got, I guess, the setup there is that in the in these young minds, there's just lots of information about what is good, what is bad, in terms of in terms of the way you go about your life. Plus, there is the the the, the hormonal urges to to grow up and be a man, which usually, if I remember rightly, as a 16 year old. Involves trying to get yourself a girl and not be a virgin, which again is a is a central point in the movie about that kind of the pressure of being young, and I think it's new pressures, isn't it? When when you add in social media and the proliferation of uh, of porn that's available left, right, and centre these days, um, how, how did you how did you feel sort of going in? Cause that's a lot of that's a lot of big big things to tackle, isn't it? And but keep keep a sense on your drama. Yes, that's absolutely right. But I think, you know, when, when you're tackling those issues, I mean, big issues, you've got to be very careful. I mean, first of all, we really were very determined not to, you know, sound preachy, mm-hmm. first of all. The second thing is that you really have to keep it all very simple. When it comes to things like drug consumption, uh, of course, there's an element of it in our film, but that's really not the gist of it when mm. it comes to... Uh, you know, young people watching, you know, pornography um, yet again. But I think the way we portray it is, how shall I say? I mean, it, it is really not the central theme of the film. Um, pedophilia, yes, but definitely Butterfly Kisses is not a film about, you know, pedophilia. When we were researching, I mean, when we were doing research for the film, mm-hmm. we actually um, did reach out to... Uh, to um, you know, people with you know certain tendencies, and we actually were able to um, to talk to them, uh, pri- primarily hoping you know to gain some sort of you know insight into it. But I think after you know talking, after you know meeting those people, we kind of concluded that pedophilia as such was not really you know our primary interest. We mm-hmm. didn't feel like we could say anything new about it. We really didn't feel like we could provide any sort of, you know, insight about, you know, why you know certain people, you know, have those tendencies. Um, we actually used it. I don't like the word gimmick, but it is a plot gimmick. You know, the way it is, you know, used in our film. Mm-hmm. Um, the protagonist is interested in, you know, a little girl that lives in a tower block, you know, across from his. Um, but we present his problem as a sort of, um, it's not a disease, but it's, it's, it's stronger than him. He doesn't really know what's happening to him. He discovers that, you know, he, he feels a certain attraction to young girls. Um, he struggles with it. He, he, he tries to understand it. He, um, he tries to hide it, you know. When he gets an opportunity to talk about it to his friends, he he backed off. He's just, uh, you know, too terrified to do so. He's too scared. Mm. Um. So his attraction to girls is just an affliction. It's just, you know, something. It's just like he has an alien inside, and that alien is torturing him. Uh, we were actually talking about Alien, you know, the film, uh, while we were 
getting ready to shoot butterfly kisses because, you know, yet again, um, we kind of thought that there were, you know, certain parallels there. We also had a, a protagonist who, you know, was suffering from something very strange and nobody could really <clears throat> figure out what was going on with them. But anyways, uh, so that's, that's how we used, you know, pedophilia in our film. It could have been something completely different. It's the darkness. It's the darkness that you encounter in the process of growing up. It's a force. It's a, it's something that is, you know, stronger than you and you're trying to come to grips with it, but it's very difficult, especially since, you know, you are too scared to ask anybody for help. Um, that's a fairly, in the that's process a fairly, of growing up, we, I was going to say that's a fairly, it's a fairly sympathetic um, opening up on on the subject, though. The idea of presenting a burgeoning paedophile as someone that is essentially a little boy lost, growing up too fast, and not understanding what's going on, and not being able to explain it, and not being able to I talk would about say, it. I would say it's not sympathetic because, you know, as, as such, we really had no interest in, you know, pedophilia mm -hmm. as a theme. We really, we really, you know, weren't attracted to it. We, we kind of felt like, you know, yet again, you know, there was only so much we could say about it. Mm. I would just say that our portrayal of it in the film is very neutral. And I think that is, actually one of the reasons why the film is so successful because it's, you know, it's very easy, you know, just to castigate, you know, people with those tendencies. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, I would be the last one to, to try to defend them. No, no, um, no, but that's what I'm saying. I, 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 don't, again, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I think your neutrality, which, which I, I, I completely appreciate what you're saying because you're, you're not saying good or bad. You're saying you're allowing the audience to decipher what is good and what is bad in terms of society. It's just that we live in a world where um, the word paedophilia conjures up a lot more than neutrality is is the point. And and what's interesting is that you've given us a yes, central character true. who isn't atypically what we picture when we think paedophile, you know, the whole demonization of the grubby right. man who kidnaps children and abuses them is certainly yes, the furthest right. it's the furthest away from this film as you could be. You know, the idea of a sixteen year old struggling with his 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 hormones, you know, for want of a better expression, in, in in the normal peer pressure guise of you're sixteen and you want to get your rocks off. And then there's this other thing, this other cloud, which is more than just the peer pressure or the inadequacy of being a virgin. There's this thing where it's like, actually, I'm That's not, right. cha I'm not chasing your dream, but I don't know what the hell I'm doing. At I, the think, same you know, time. I, I think, you, I think, you know, you've put it very well. Okay. But, you know, to us, just even, you know, the way the film is structured, you know, the film has a narrator who is, you know, the main protagonist's friend. Mm. And actually he's the one telling us the story. And the key scene in the film happens towards the end when the two friends realize what was happening to Jake, the protagonist, who is the boy with, you know, those tendencies. And they look at each other once it's too late to do anything about it, and they realize their helplessness. That's why I said that it was primarily a film about friendship. 
about those moments when you lose a friend. You lose a friend to, um, let's say, a car accident, or you lose somebody you are very close to, to cancer. Um, and once that happens, you know, um, you, you lose your innocence. And for, you know, most of that, I mean, for, you know, all of us, that something happened, that moment happens at, you know, different stages in our lives. Some of us probably experience it, you know, earlier than the others. Mm-hmm. Um, to our protagonist, it happens when they are 16, 17. They think that the world is quite a safe place. Uh, that The world is all about porn and drugs and being silly and talking about girls in a certain way. And then that darkness invades that space, Mm. leaving them profoundly shocked. And that's, that's really how, that's really what, you know, the film is about to me. Good to be reacquainted. I'm not going to pretend this is the uh, continuation because it's going to sound very different to people when they hear it recording. We uh, were cut short by technology on our first attempt to do a podcast, but we got a good 20 minutes or so in the can. Um, And this is us picking up the baton 24 hours later. So Sounds good. (laughs) We'll get there in the end, Raphael. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. Um, So... uh, Part of the reason that we've come together to talk about your movie, Butterfly Kisses, is the fact that you're taking it to Berlin Film Festival. Do you want to tell us what's happening and why filmmakers might want to take a film to Berlin? I mean, um, for us, it's first and foremost a fantastic opportunity to introduce a wider audience to our film. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a low-budget film. Uh, We've had two industry screenings in London. They actually, uh, they've both gone extremely well, received very favorable reviews. Okay. But yet again, those industry screenings, they tend to be quite localized. Uh, Berlin is um, is a massive chance for us to uh, to show the film to an international audience. And we are really you know, curious what they're going to say about it. Uh, we have just employed um, sales agents, or we've been picked up by sales agents. Okay, that's good And we're quite happy about it. It's a... Uh, the German company called Emma Peel, and um, they'll be trying to sell our film internationally, mostly in Europe, because mm-hmm. we have retained the uh, right to, uh, to the UK and the United States. Mm-hmm. So um, we do hope that we have three screenings in Berlin. The first one is going to be the world premiere. The second, the other two will target primarily film buyers. And um, we do hope we'll be able to sell our film to as many territories as possible. So far, we've sold it to one territory, which actually is Poland. Okay. Uh, but we do hope there'll be you know, many more of them. So when you say you've sold it to Poland, does that mean what's going to get a screening at a cinema? Or is that's that... right. That's right. One of the, uh, one of the largest um, distributors in Poland called Tolopan. Yeah. They saw the film early on. They saw it actually when it wasn't finished. Mm-hmm. They saw it back in May, if I remember correctly. They liked it a lot, and they jumped in very, very early on, and uh, and they bought the Polish rights. 
of course, do hope that other distributors will buy, you know, national rights in other territories. Excellent, excellent. Well, fingers crossed for that. Um, obviously, we're talking in the run-up to uh, your your screening at um, at Berlin. Uh, so, Britflix wishes you best of luck. That's right. Thank you. So, one of the um, one of the more obvious things that that will make your film stand out in 2017 is a very stylistic one that you've chosen to go down. It'd be remiss of me not to mention it. Your film has been shot entirely in black and white, which in um, in 2017 is going to make it stand out a little. Um, for, for good reasons, for bad reasons, obviously. Some people won't get that and some people will, will embrace it. So from your point of view, what was what, what governed the decision to shoot in black and white? Or indeed, did you shoot in colour and then post-produce black and white? Um, actually, no, we did not. Most of the projects nowadays, black and white projects, they do shoot in colour and then they decide to desaturate the image. Um, mm-hmm. We decided very early on to shoot the black and white film. And okay. uh, we did not actually want to have the option of keeping the color. So uh, the film was shot with a, with a very kind of unique camera called um, Alexa Monochrome. There are not too many of them. Uh, it's it's the red monochrome. Okay. And what's the Actually, I'm not quite sure right now whether it was red or Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we we okay. Let's but, but the, go but back, the, okay? the point the point you're making though is that you shot on a monochrome camera. Is what you're saying? Yeah, that's what you're saying. Is, yeah, I'm just not quite sure if it was a red or an Alexa. You know. Okay. But anyways, uh, so yes, we shot the project uh, with a black and white camera, mm-hmm. um, and we chose black and white for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, when you are shooting a low budget film, and ours is definitely low budget. Yeah. Uh, you don't really have a big production design uh, budget, so your resources are quite limited. Yeah. Um, ours is not a period piece, it's actually very contemporary, but we did feel like black and white was, you know, going to help us tremendously in terms of creating a unified world without investing a lot of money in, in production design. So uh, that was a very, very important consideration that, you know, came up, you know, early on. The second reason why we chose black and white uh, was Stylistic. Um, if you watch my previous, I mean, earlier movies, um, you'll you'll notice that actually quite a few of them, you know, were black and white, including uh, my most successful short film called Emily Cries. Mm-hmm. Um, I simply like black and white. Uh, black and white. I do believe that it has a timeless quality. I do believe that it's a little bit more abstract than color, and I do think that black and white films have a dreamy or slightly melancholic quality that is very difficult to achieve in color. Um, and thirdly, black and white, in my view, some people might consider it a little bit passe, but we've had quite a few black, you know, very successful black and white films recently. Uh, the artist, you know, to mention, you know, one of them. So um, I think black and white films are, I wouldn't say that they are coming back, but, you know, there are definitely of them around. And uh, in fact, the audience black and white is, uh, much of a handicap, and the more if I if I'm making myself clear here. So, all in all, we did feel like black and white was definitely the way to go right up bat, and we are quite happy with the way things have turned out. Well, it didn't. It, black and white didn't do. Uh, uh, is, do you pronounce the film Ida? Ida, the, the Polish film from 2013. 
Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. Um, Ida, or in Polish it's pronounced actually Ida, um, is a very good example of a black and white film that you know, was wildly successful on the festival circuit about two years ago and it ended up winning an, a foreign language Oscar. So uh, um, definitely a critical and commercial success, although the film was black and white. Now uh, you, you mentioned some some of the some of the um, some of the looks and feel you get. Now the, the, the obvious kind of disadvantage is with colour you you see everything, but like you explained, you you didn't have the production budget maybe to pull off all the sets that you want. So so in that sense, what do you feel is the is the advantage for you as a filmmaker shooting in black and white? I think you know it's very individual. I'm just one of those filmmakers who have a very um, a very very clear vision of what you know they want to achieve i believe and uh when i think about stories uh, very often you know i see them black and white mm-hmm. um one of the advantages is that black and white tends to be a little bit more abstract i think uh color especially um if not used well might distract from the story um there's no risk of muddling things up, if I'm making myself clear, you know, with black and white. Mm. I think um, black and white has this almost sacred quality to it, as I call it, uh, which helps me depict certain emotions, uh, which also helps me to uh, generate the kind of feel that I would like my films to have. Mm. Um, I do think that it has something to do, it's very individual, I think, um, it has something to do with the way we feel about stories, the way we see stories. Um, um, all my stories have a very personal quality to them, and I think that is also true about you know butterfly kisses. And um, just arriving at that kind of moment when you feel like you know your film is real, like it's honest, like like it's very subjective. Um, I think, you know, black and white helps with it tremendously, but it helps me. It might not be true about other filmmakers, but again, in my in my case, definitely uh, I do like black and white. And I think, you know, my stories and the scenes that I'm interested in exploring, they lend themselves to that kind of stylistic choice. I mean, the other thing is, from from as a viewer of having seen the film uh, and another modern uh, black and white movies is that, in colour, because of the way digital works, the tendency to light everything because the camera picks it up, you know, in um, it, and you know, which is the kind of beauty of, uh, sorry, the, the the sort of convenience of digital filming. But I think with when when people choose to shoot black and white, they they seem this is you know this is just an opinion. It's not it's not I'm not basing this on scientific facts, but it seems that people are more aware of what you're meant to be looking at. Because if everything's not in colour, then you might as well focus the light and obviously the viewer's eyes on what you want them to be watching, which is a kind of... That, that's always what cinema's been about, you know, about the way we see. But I think sometimes with colour, you can have a bit too much noise, whereas with, with black and white, the limit actually creates the, the need to focus on what it is we should be looking at. Yes, that's probably true. There is a certain, you know, simplicity to black and white. I think, you know, one of the jobs of a film director, of a narrative film director is to lead the audience's eye um, across the uh, screen, I mean, uh, around the screen, rather. Mm. And I think, you know, uh, black and white offers you uh, plenty of opportunity for that, simply because 
it just operates by a contrast between lighter and darker areas. So mm. uh, um, all of a sudden, it's a game of kind of manipulating the audience, of manipulating where they are looking at at a given moment in time, uh, just becomes a little bit easier. I also think that black and white, I mean, there's a myth, uh, which is actually quite widespread among young cinematographers today. Um, a lot of them seem to claim that, you know, black and white is simpler to light, which mm. is not true. I think you are, when you are lighting a, <clears throat> a scene, you are lighting it, you know, in the same way for, you know, color, uh, as well as for, you know, black and white. It, it's really, it, 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 it should be the same lighting setup. Everything should be lit well. And that's really the bottom line. So uh, there are no shortcuts there. But it again has color. You know, black and white simplifies everything. Um, there are certain colors that I, for example, don't like. They don't belong in the world that I would like to depict on the screen. One of those colors, for example, is yellow. Mm. I very subjectively, I'm not a big fan of yellow. Uh, when you are filming in a tower block that seems to be, I mean, that happens to be, where corridors happen to be painted yellow, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do about it. Without the money to retain them, <laughs> you are stuck. Black and white takes care of that problem. So yet again, it's a combination of aesthetic choices and convenience. And I think that's that's really what, you know, drove our decision to, to, to go with black and white. And what do you feel is um, is your fate? What, what, I mean, I'm sure you love it all, but what 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 are your f- favourite results you got in the movie in terms of where black and white really worked? Is there any particular any particular moments or scenes that you can recall that that where you 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 just feel that the, the the choice of black and white was sort of was a was a wise one? You know, we could talk a lot about you know, let's say characters, what they feel in a given moment, and you know, one of them will be lighter because you know. They, they will be lit light, and the other one will be lit, you know, in a dark way or in a low key, um, and you know that kind of justifies because you know they are, you know, thinking different thoughts. One of them will be, you know, thinking a horrible thought, while the other one will be thinking, you know, something, you know, very optimistic. I mean, you could talk a lot about that, and there are moments in the film where I believe that is the case. The character that seems to be lit in the higher key is the one who is, you know, positive and. Uh, more optimistic, etc. But I think, you know, lighting or black and white is not going to make a scene. I think uh, each scene has to have a dramatic shape that is appropriate for it. And that has very little to do with the way, you know, whether it's, you know, in color or black and white. My favorite scene in the film is uh, uh, when the two boys realize what Jake has done and they are looking at the window mm. um, in the corridor, in the tower block, and they're looking down towards the flat where the little girl uh, lives and uh, without any words, they kind of, you know, figure out very quickly why Jake was in coming to the same spot um, in the, the previous scenes. Uh, and that moment of realization when they look at each other in frustration, they they just didn't clock early, that they weren't able to, you know, they were able to think about it earlier on is definitely my, my favorite scene in the film. And if you look at the way it's lit, um, it's, it's, it's actually, you know, that the scene is, is, is quite dark, but because we operate with very extreme close-ups, you know, the eyes of the boys are actually quite prominent in the frame. And, mm. you know, of course, the whites of their eyes, um, the whites of, the, of, of their eyes, uh, you know, simply 
they, they look very strong, you know, against the dark background. And uh, and I think that's a visual effect where, you know, black and white helped us, you know. Um, but there are loads of instances in the film where, where I believe that kind of contrast that the film has is helping us. You see, I think that, you know, stylistically, Butterfly Kisses is really a very funny hybrid of a couple of you know, different genres. Mm. I think film has, you know, elements of a of a straight out drama. It does have elements of a horror film, especially in the sequences in which Jake kind of uh, you know makes his way to the girl to the little girl's room and he walks, you know, <clears throat> along the fire escape. Um I think, you know, those those scenes in terms of the way the suspense is built and everything, you know, could you know come straight from a horror film. Um there are elements of comedy in the film as well. Um, especially in the scenes where, you know, boys are just, you know, playing pranks on their neighbors and, you know, they're doing all sorts of, you know, silly things. Um, there are elements of a teenage, of a typical teenage, you know, film in Butterfly Kisses as well. Anyways, um, I think black and white in a funny way kind of allows us to transition from, you know, one stylistic genre to, to the other quite closely. Um, I'm not quite sure it would have been true about I don't know what would I don't know how easy it would have been if we had tried to do it, you know, in color. I have no idea, but I strongly suspect that, you know, black and white blends, you know, all those kind of, you know, genre choices um in a very unique way. Mm-hmm. That is what is that you know, we wanted to make another council state movie. We've seen quite a few of those, and they all have, you know, a very kind of similar drab look. Uh, although they use color, I'm not going to name the titles here, but you know, in the last couple of years, let's say the last decade in England, we've had a number of council estate films, and they all look, you know, quite depressive. You know, they all, you know, have this kind of, how shall I say, um, quiet. Um, mm, Desperation. Yes. I mean, I think I think the thing is, I think the black black and white does 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 for depressing areas what a fresh uh, falling of snow does, where it sort of of covers up. That's exactly what we were aiming to do. We did not want to make another depressing movie about you know council estates. We always wanted to make a film which, in a very strange way, was optimistic. I don't know if you know the final film is optimistic. I look at it as something that actually does give you hope. Well, but, I, th- I think uh, I think you're right. I think you're 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 not allowing the built environment to be a kind of beacon for depression because we can't see all the details. We can't see the flecky paint. We can't see the bad choice right. of yellow in the stairway because we haven't got those. So what we focus on is the people. And something that struck me when you were talking there about about the main characters. Is um, and it wasn't something that that first struck me when I watched it, but now as we're talking about it, and and obviously I'm thinking about it more and more, is um, is that you you neatly create an absence of of adult role models, never mind adult figures, from the action. I mean, they they appear in fits and starts, but none of the, none of the adults really have a big influence on on the the, the sixteen seventeen year olds, other than. Uh, the Thomas Turgus character, who is, I guess, in his twenties, and he's hardly what you call a positive role model for the kids. Um, that's right. He's he's kind of like a, a a boy that's never grown up. 
and the only kind of people he can get respect from are those that are younger than him. And having grown up in, you know, a post-industrial town, I met plenty of people like that when I was growing up as well. You know, I completely recognise it. But but that <clears throat> just go back to the original point, though, that there is a real absence of adult figures in this movie. This is really about. Uh, kids left to their own devices, isn't it? Literally left their own devices when they're looking at the phones and stuff. But, but what, what, what yeah, do you... that's true. I mean, I think, I think you know, when it comes to you know, teenage movies in general, you know, when you look at the uh, primary conflicts in those films, um, you know, one of those one of those primary conflicts is always about you know between the kids and the parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We wanted to, uh, we wanted to subvert it to a certain extent. So yet again, I believe that you know we wanted to make quite an optimistic film in black and white, about council estates, which, you know, yet again, sounds absolutely crazy, but I do think that we've achieved something, there's something romantic almost about the way the film works. Um, it almost, you know, kind of reminds you of a one long dream sequence, uh, which, you know, again, for us was incredibly important. Um, but the absence of the adult world, um, I think your reading of the film is absolutely spot on, which was, you know, of course, it was, you know, all by design. Mm-hmm. Um, we do signal the presence of the adult world in the first 15 minutes of the film, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. believe that um, you know, it would have been very difficult to sell the film about you know, three teenage boys if we hadn't shown you know, any adults in it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But you know, once we get, let's say, the adults out of the way, in the manner of speaking, you know, we just focus on the boys. And you know, I, I did grow up on a council estate, but in a very different country. Actually, I grew up in Poland. I'm Polish. I have um, lived in Poland for almost 30 years now. Um, and I, you know, I've lived in the UK for 18 years. Um, of course, growing up on a council estate in Poland is a very different experience. Uh, but, you know, I do claim, you know, to know a little bit about, you know, what it means to be growing up in the UK as well. Simply, I thought for a long time my students are aged I was between 15 and you know, 25. So uh, I do talk to them. I do understand a little bit about you know, their lives as well, I believe. Anyway, the point is that I think when you are growing up, when we are aged 16, 17, you know, parents, uh, they actually play quite, uh, at least in my life, they, quite, they played quite a peripheral role. Um, they were present. They were there. But at the same time, my peers uh, exerted a massive influence on, you know, who who I was, how I behaved, what films I watched, you know, what parties I was going to, etc. And I think, you know, it's something very, very universal. And I think uh, we did want to contain, uh, create a very contained world. We did want to bring those three boys as friends, as close to each other as physically possible. And, you know, in terms of the story, yet again, you know, uh, let's say, strengthening the role of adults in you know the boys' life would have been would have been a mistake. That's that's, that's yeah, yeah. No, I understand. The, it would it would have it would have had the kind of more traditional kind of conflict. That's right. When, when in fact, what, right. what you wanted to show was was um, Jake's unguided descent into wrong. Yes. With without yes, that's without absolutely it having right. Yeah, yeah. So look, um, but, thinking thinking about your casting, Raphael. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be interested to learn from from um, from your point of view. What, what, once you've cast your your main your main characters, um, from a director's point of view, what what what's your relationship with them, sort of pre-shoot and then on the shoot? How 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 are you 
How do you go about getting the best performances out of your cast? What's your What's your approach? I mean, one thing that is praised about the film are you know the central performances, and I, I I'm very proud of them personally. I think uh, we did a couple of things right. Uh, first of all, we did organize a very extensive you know casting process. Right. We put it in place very early on, and we spent a lot of time on it. I think that in total, we must have seen three, four hundred, you know, young actors Jeez. from London and from actually all over the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did only three. Uh, my initial thinking was that we should really go. I mean, first of all, when you are looking for sixteen, you know, year old actors, you know, you cannot count on their having, you know, too much experience. Of course. So uh, our initial idea was, well, we want the whole thing to be real. Maybe we should just get, you know, three boys who are three teenagers who who've had no experience, you know, fresh faces. And uh, but after a couple of casting sessions, you know, we did a lot of dramatic exercises during those sessions. And while watching them, I kind of thought to myself, you know, real, natural, it's all very good, you know, raw. But you really need someone who is going to provide a bit of a of an anchor, of a point of reference, you know, to the other two boys. And that's when Thea Stevenson, you know, came up. And uh, we talked to him about the role, which, you know, is incredibly challenging for a 16-year-old actor. Theo, um, you know, had, you know, some experience. Um, and, you know, we decided that we would have, you know, one more experienced actor and, you know, two two absolute beginners. Um so Liam Whiting and Byron Lyons, you know, they came out of the uh, of those you know casting sessions, and um, we did a lot of dramatic exercises, you know, drama exercises. We also did a lot of uh, I did a lot of talking to the uh, you know to the uh, to the boys who you know were on the shortlist, uh, and we actually did um, like a technical rehearsal, you know, on the actual location. Okay. So we selected three three boys, we took them to the actual location and we did a bit of shooting. And that's when we realized that actually one of the boys just kind of lacked the quality that we needed. And the quality we needed was, um, he just, he was very inexperienced, um, but he also um, struggled with, you know, being natural in front of the camera. I think that's not the fair way of putting it. And we did decide actually to replace him just in a couple of days before the shoot. Uh, And that was a massive decision, absolutely massive, because everything was in place. And the three boys, they had already spent some time with one another. And then, you know, we are coming in saying, hey, you know, by the way, we we are going to replace one of you. It was a very risky move. Uh, But I think from the director's perspective, you know, those are the risks or those are the, uh, the moments when you really have to make very strong, you know, choices. And I insisted on, you know, making the change, and we did make the change. And I think in the end, uh, it was exactly the right decision to make. But when we were making it, mm. um, I think we were all, you know, slightly terrified what it really meant for the film. So I would say that on a lower budget film, what you really need is uh, you really need to get your cast absolutely right. You really need to find the time to find, you know, the best young actors, you know, you like. Like it was, you know, the case, uh, you know, for us. You, you really need to invest a lot of time into finding them, into locating them. I think London, in that respect, is one of the best, you know, places in the world because you have so much acting talent here. 
it's absolutely amazing uh, uh, how big the pool of you know talented you know again teenagers is in the city or in the UK such. So you know, we had loads of names you know to choose from. We were actually spoiled for choice. Uh, but we did go through you know all the stages that you usually have to go through to find you know to find the people that you really need. No, no that makes, it makes, was, a lot, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I was going to. Once we started shooting, you know, we realized straight away on day one that you know, the cast was well orchestrated, that the boys actually, there was chemistry between them that we wanted. They actually were getting along with each other extremely well. By the end of probably the third day, they, you know, they were all friends. Uh, and that made my easier, my job as a director, you know, much, much easier later on. Now, I'm not wishing to give away your state secrets here, but... On that first day of filming on set, do you do you have a do you have a formula for sort of setting a tone for the for the for the shoot, or do you um, do you do you react to what situation is? Do you want to talk about that first day on set? Well, that first day on set is always difficult, simply because everyone is a bit rusty, including the technical crew. So everyone needs a little bit of time just to get up to speed, uh, and that is true about you know pretty much all departments. Um, technical departments. So that's one thing. You have to allow, you know, your technical crew a little bit of time just to, you know, just to get up to speed in terms of working together, in terms of, um, you know, realizing, you know, like, you know, how I, how myself as a director, how I like to work, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to actors, I do believe that, you know, you've got to start with a very difficult scene. Mm. Just again, to set the tone to, you know, to kind of set the stakes, to to make sure that everybody feels that, you know, we are making a film for real. And uh, that's exactly what, you know, what we did. We, we um, the first scene we shot was one of the more difficult ones because it was a scene in which Jake introduces himself to Zara, uh, the girl who, you know, later on plays a very important role in, you know, the life of his character. Um, and he took us probably a little bit longer than it should have to to get, you know, to, to shoot the scene well. Uh, but it was all, you know, it was all part of the process. I mean, we knew it was going to take longer. We knew that scene would require a little bit more patience. We knew that everyone was going to make, you know, some sort of mistake. Um, and I'm quite relaxed, actually, when it comes to, you know, shooting those, you know, early scenes, because I do know that, in my view, actors don't really get into it by, you know, before the yeah. before the end of day three. I do believe that even very experienced actors need about two days to kind of realize what you as director really want from them. They kind of, you know, get a sense of your personality, um, of how you write the script. Let's say if you have, a, let's say, you know, a pause in the script, you know, they kind of begin to understand what it means, how they are supposed to make that pause, etc. So. Uh, you just have to be very patient, you have to be very open, and you've got to be very understanding because mistakes will be made. And, you know, some of the things that you are going to get uh, within those first, you know, couple of days are going to be substandard. It's just, you know, it's just the nature of the beast. You'll never get 100% of what you set out to get, you know? So, look, for, for, for those people that are listening that may be heading off to, um, to Berlin, when, when's your actual screening? Well, the world premiere of our film is screened for 8 p.m. on the 11th of February, which is a Saturday. Excellent. 
That's excellent. That's such an exciting prospect, a world premiere at Berlin Film Festival. Um, uh, I'm virtually patting you on the back as we as we speak um, over this uh, over this podcast of recording. Well, look, Raphael. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for uh, for doing the sequel, so we could uh, we I can bookend these two conversations together and make a whole podcast. I really appreciate you taking time out to speak to Britflix. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your having me over. As promised, that was a snippet from the Butterfly Kisses score by Nathan Klein. The whole score will be available as an album released by Air Edel Records on the 11th of February 2017. And you can get it from all good platforms, including iTunes, Spotify and Amazon. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.